Circle of Birth podcast, reclaiming our birth potential with ancient wisdom and stories from birth and beyond, sharing the rich spectrum of family diversity and transformation, stories worldwide bringing together community and connectivity. Come together with story medicine and inspire at our unique birth journeys. We breathe, we birth, we become. episode 48 (laughs) and thank you to everyone that's been offering feedback and encouragement and support about this show where it's headed over the past year and especially want to extend a big thanks to a woman named Alicia who left me some feedback last year that just really resonated with me uh, in a sense of someone that's not pregnant yet and wanting to calling a baby soon and has been listening to the show and has found this really progressive in her journey and it was a beautiful voice message that she left me through the website and I just want to say thank you to her and thank you to everyone that's been really listening and giving me some advice and feedback on the show and what they felt and what came up for them so again thank you all and today it's been a while again. <laughs> um, I'm doing my best, but I loved this interview with Vicky, uh, wise woman without a doubt. Been through um, an experiential side of life, and that's put her into the place that she's in now. So we've got a doula here with a rich, rich, rich tapestry of wisdom to offer in this show. And I'm just deeply honoured to have her on the podcast. It's this quite amazing story of strength, love, hope and possibility as Vicky has navigated the birth and death paths in her life and her colour of experience and guidance. So right from the young age, with her first daughter was removed in Australia as the forced, forced adoption program in the 1970s. And so tune in, the story goes on from here. Hi, Vicky. I am so, so deeply honoured to have you on the show, uh, sharing your wisdom, your big, big career or big personal and professional life as a doula and a birth worker. And you have some really special journeys to share with us. So I'm just deeply honoured and welcome to the Circle of Birth. Thank you, Elliot. It's it's an honour to be able to talk with you and to... um I've often said I've, I've retired from birth work now, but my brains are ready for picking from anyone who wants to look over them. So I'm an open book. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of books, we um, first met in person when I went to your place because you uh, let go of all your books and <laughs> we, had, we had such a beautiful discussion about the letting go process and I've, you know, I've just cherished those books that I received from you. So <laughs> that's well, that I I was terrified of that process um, of of converting my clinic into an art studio. Now it's the most wonderful art studio. I've got no regrets at all. So it was a really lovely transition to be able to move from one time of my life to another, which is really rich and full now, without regretting moving on and being able to pass that information, those books and and material onto other jewelers was a great way to do it. Yeah, and I bet you would have had just heaps of excited people there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like me, I was over the moon and I ended up carrying back about 
extra books that I should have, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'll get uh, used. <laughs> you can never have too many books. Yeah, I know. <laughs> My whole shelf is full, and I've got ones that I haven't read yet that are piling up but I just love them <laughs> and in my my previous career before I retired and moved into doula work I was a librarian so I can't be held responsible for my need to gather printed material ah so did you have all your books catalogued into certain categories at your place when you had them there of course I did <laughs> how, how did you do it like alphabetically or did you do it by sort of um, oh, subject order. Subject order, yeah. <laughs> and alphabetically by author. Yeah. <laughs> oh, both. Did, okay, good. And I did have an online catalogue, which um, if I'd known you earlier, I would have given you a link to my catalogue and you could have looked at my entire collection. Oh, but they wow. were just my birth books. I've got other collections all over the house. So. Yeah, wow, fantastic. There's the librarian skills transverse yes. across. <laughs> So I would love to talk about your birth journeys and could we go back to you uh, as a 19-year-old and having this birth experience? Could you take us through that journey? Vicky is 19. I am 19. Um, in my first job, I have the trophy boyfriend. Everything's really fantastic until I discover I'm pregnant. And in those days, it was um, uh, not a good place to be, um, single and pregnant. So a marriage was hastily arranged. What year were you looking at here? We're looking at 1969. Okay, yep. Um, I should say I'm 66 because these dates and things are such are so far in the past for most of people who are listening to this that it's hard to put it into perspective. So I am 66, so it's a long time ago, but I'm 19. And um, well, I'm 18, actually. And um, two weeks before the wedding, the father of my child decided this wasn't for him and he, he left and I never saw him again. And um, I have suffered from the most debilitating um, hyperemesis that I, I couldn't, couldn't even think straight and um, ended up being moved to a convent for unmarried mothers where I was cared for, absolutely spectacularly by the nuns there, but I, I was um, coerced into giving up my baby for adoption. It, at the time, it was there was government policy that I didn't know about. Um, government policy was forcing... Um, religious organisations into forcing girls into give up their babies for adoption. Um, and it was coated in the idea that um, this was the very best thing for our babies, that we couldn't look after our babies on our own. There was no support systems then. And so um, I was sort of resigned to the fact that I was going to lose this baby. Um, when I went into labour, um, I was left completely on my own. At one point, um, a, a couple of student doctors came around with clipboards and were interviewing people, and I had a copy of Time magazine beside my bed, and a young doctor or student doctor looked at me, looked at the magazine and said, do you actually read this or just look at the pictures? And from that point on, I thought... <laughs> freaking idiot I was so angry 
So wait a second. And this is why you're in labour. They asked you. Well, this. very early labour. Oh, what gosh. I had I had gone into the hospital for for my weekly checkup on the train on my own with my bag just in case and. And it was discovered that I was in early labour, so they wanted to keep me in. So I wasn't sort of, you know, it was it was pre-labour. I think nowadays we'd call it pre-labour. Um, and you know, I was a highly educated young woman, and this this bloke just really fired me up. And I thought, you asshole! And um, excuse my French. <laughs> um, so I was left on my own to labour, um, and. When I reached second stage, I was moved into another room where I birthed practically on my own. Um, right at the very end, um, some doctors and you know staff came in. I, I can't really remember what happened, but the baby was born, and I can remember saying, "Let me see my baby." So we'll come back to that phrase, "Let me see my baby." Um, the baby was wrapped up, and I saw her face, and that was all. And she was whisked away. Um, the nuns at the convent had advised us not to see our babies because they said it was too difficult to uh, to give them up, certainly not to hold them. So I never held her. Uh, I saw her very briefly. And I was then moved into a small side ward where there was one other lady. I was told this lady's baby had died and I wasn't to speak to her. So I had that sense that, you know, I just needed to shut up about this. I moved back to the convent where I was cared for with such love and concern and then returned to home um, two weeks later where not a word was mentioned and it was like it never happened. Like Vicky had been on a holiday and she'd come back and life would just go on. Um, life did go on. I married um, not a couple of years later, unwisely as it turned out. That marriage didn't last. I had... Um, my first son, Jake, who is now, I don't know, 40, whatever, old. Um, two years after having, oh, and when I had Jake, I was um, I was caught up in the hospital system in those days. There weren't the checks and balances that women today have. We weren't constantly monitored to make sure our bodies were doing the right thing. Um, we just we just we were just pregnant, and I don't know what they. I've never had an ultrasound. Um, we weren't date scanned or anything like that. We just grew babies inside us, and then we had them. But the having them was a bit difficult. We were on our backs. We had to have our pubic hair shaved. We were given enemas, and I thought, hang on, this this just isn't right. So after I'd had my son Jake, um, I became really really interested in the whole mechanics of birth. Um, there wasn't a lot of printed material at the time. There was, um, I devoured, you know, Dick Grantly Reed and uh, Le Boyer and, and I thought if I ever have another baby, um, I'm going to get it right this time. We don't need to be on our backs. We don't need all this shaving and enema rubbish. Um, and I was, the, two years later, I was pregnant again. Um, but I had uh, stillborn twins. It was a very, very different experience. Uh, it was 26 weeks. I hemorrhaged really, really badly and um, spent time in hospital, and that experience was pretty horrific. I didn't know I was carrying twins. Um, I came out of theatre in tears, and a nurse patted me on the back and said, there, there, you'll be right, plenty more where they came from. 
and mm. was told to get on with it. So that was that was pretty horrendous, and I will be talking a fair bit about this later when I am. Um, I'll be speaking at the Let Me See My Baby event in Canberra in December, um, because that was one of those pivotal moments in my life. Just I, um, to sort of backtrack there too, how could you identify emotionally after that experience with your twins? the sort of going through that again, being told that it's okay, forget about it, um, after, you know, carrying through that first experience with your daughter that you disconnected from back at back at 18? Um, what, it, what it does is it's, it's really, really complex. You have this, this grief, but it's almost undignified to... Um, reveal it to anyone and you think um, it's hard to put into words you know birth has to be better than this I had this I had this instinctive idea that this was not the way birth is Jake wasn't the way birth is my first daughter wasn't the way birth is there was that there was that anger um, there was grief there was a an instinct that it shouldn't be this way. And I think those things combined, you know, one would rise to the surface and then another one would. But that that sort of, you know, trinity of emotions really was what was bubbling away inside me. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. And did you have avenues, uh, especially after the twins, uh, avenues to talk about your daughter and the twins as not you grew into your birth work and you as a person? Nothing, nothing. Not a, not a dicky bird, nothing at all. Um, I mean, that's the way the societal structure was back then, wasn't it? You mean you just uh, you shut your mouth and you didn't talk about it? You got on with life. You got, you you got on with life, yeah. yeah. You did. There was always somebody who was worse off than you were. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and really legitimate. Yeah, for it to be on display. So it was just never on display. And and around this time, or actually prior to that, after I had Jake, I got really really involved with the Nursing Mothers Association, which is now um, ABA, isn't it? Australian Breastfeeding Association. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I was a counsellor and group leader. So that that um, those groups that became my clan. And that became my my area, um, um, breastfeeding and um, lactation consult consulting. Um, so I was very very heavily involved in that. Um, but even with that group of people, I I didn't really talk about my losses because I just felt it wasn't appropriate. People were either pregnant or having new babies. They didn't want to hear about my my grief. So I just got on with it and um, then um, had. Amy, my next daughter, and had the most amazing birth experience. It was just fabulous. I, I had a local GP. I was living in country Victoria at the time. I had a local GP who was very non-interventionist. He'd actually consulted me on a number of occasions previously regarding issues surrounding um, lactation. So we had a really, we had a really great relationship. 
and he was a firm believer that, you know, we, we women knew best when it came to babies and how to birth them. And at that time, I had a lot of good friends and we were all having babies about the same time and we were all very much part of the natural birth movement and, um, you know, very active in that movement. And we had our babies upright. We refused to be shaved. We didn't have enemas. Um, we, there wasn't, the, there weren't the midwives available for us to have home births, but we had the closest thing that we could have to home births. We didn't stay in hospitals. We just had our babies and came straight home. And so that was sort of the basis of my, that was, that was my healing and that was my basis for my ongoing birth work, that women are really tough. And that will take me right back to when my first daughter was born. After she was born, it was a, a hideous experience, but I thought we women are a lot tougher than we're given credit for. So when I had my next daughter, Amy, I thought, yes, we are. We can do this. We just need the right amount of information, the right amount of support, and that's physical and emotional support, and we can do it. And it was that point on that I became sort of the go-to birthy sort of person within my circles of my family. Sounds like a bit of a deep calling right from that moment of your first birth that's just slowly come through. Um, and you know what? I never thought of it as that, but it just evolved. You know, I'm good at gardening. I'm good at art. And, I'm, you know, there are things that I'm sort of okay at and... So you go to the person who's good at that, and that's just, it's sort of evolved. So I went, I had another career. Um, I had another baby as well, um, and she was my, you know, my beautiful surprise baby. So she, I, I didn't menstruate between having Amy and, and the last baby, Gemma. I didn't have a due date, and that was okay. Yeah, my doctor said, well, you know. You just have a baby. Some people go and have these sort of scan things, but you know you're still going to have a baby. Was that and the same that doctor? Yeah, yeah. That was the most wonderful, liberating thing. So um, when when that last baby was born, um, my grandmother actually travelled from Warrnambool on the train a few days before. We thought you know we might be having a baby, and she was she was an inspiration to me. She was a really strong, feisty woman. She had a story to tell. When my father was two and in hospital um, four hours away with polio, she had a baby who lived for three weeks. And then she came home, got my father from hospital and nursed him. And we didn't know about this until after she died. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, when I had that last baby, my grandmother rocks up and she fills the fridge with freezer and we fill the fridge with freezer, fills the freezer with food and <laughs> after the other kids and, you know, I'm thinking I might have this baby tonight and I put the other kids to bed and go off to hospital and have the baby and, you know, I'm back in the morning before they're even woken up and so they wake up with a new baby in bed with mum and dad and it was just beautiful. It was lovely and I thought this is how it should be. And just in terms of like technicalities, were your labours long with all your children? Was did you notice any patterns or any anything significant during those? You patterns? you asking an old brain to go back a long way. <laughs> Young, my youngest daughter's thirty eight, so put that into perspective. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I don't. The last one, she was a, a in a 
posterior position so she was she was pretty sort of tricky and I do remember thinking oh crikey you know this this isn't very nice um but I never had any pain relief um you know every every birth I have you know recalled that sort of nanosecond which I recognize as transition where you think oh good god I'm dying get me out of here I don't want to do this anymore and then you've got a baby and um you know the joy of holding the baby and the fact that you're completely drug free I think makes a big difference your your senses are so heightened and it's just so it's so amazing and wonderful that um um when you talk about you know were they long labors I don't think they were but then what is a long labour? Yeah, I was just about to say that then. I just had this whole uh, collection of your situations and then that, that really guiding, supporting doctor at the end that just, like you said, it was quite liberated. So what, I mean, time didn't really matter, I guess, with that or what, yeah, what is a long labour? What does yeah, that and mean? I, <laughs> that's right. And I see... You know, talking to younger women today, they say, oh, you know, my sister had a, you know, an 82-hour labour and and I say, well, when did labour start? Well, she had a first contraction on Tuesday and then she had another one four hours later. And I thought, oh, well, no, it's not the movies. It's not like, oh, you have a contraction, quick call the ambulance, you're going to have a baby. So I think that when does labour start will forever be a fraught question. Yeah, because what is time in birth, really? <laughs> yeah. What is it? And it what is it exactly? And what's a midwifery view of when labour began? Um, what's a what's a media view of when labour began? What's a personal view of when labour began? It's like saying to somebody, "Can you tell me the moment you fell in love?" Yeah, that's true. Isn't it, it? Yeah. it it's it's a sort of a waffly thing. It's yeah. a thing that sort of evolves. Tell me, with Amy's pregnancy after your twins, how was it? Were you did you have a lot of anxiety during that? I was as nervous as all heck. Mm. And um, the awful thing that happened then was at about at about six months, um, I had a slow water leak. So I was um, admitted to hospital and told to just be very still. <laughs> there wasn't really much that could, could be done. And I was terrified that the same thing was happening, that I was going to lose this baby as well. And an interesting story around that time, I had a neighbour that I was, we'd known each other probably two years and she was having her first baby and she she was about term when I was admitted to hospital. While I was in hospital, there was a particular midwife or nurse, they weren't midwives, they were nurses, I think, and she would come in and, and you know, treat me, take my odds, whatever they were doing, and she had such a cold manner about her. She was really cold, and I thought, I don't really like you very much. Anyway, time moved on, and um, I was fine. There was no more leakage. I was in hospital for, I think, about a month and was finally allowed to come home and then went back and when I had Amy, that same nurse was there. Oh, when I got home, I discovered that my neighbour had had her baby and it had died. It had lived for a couple of hours and it had died. It was just, it was devastating. And then when I went back to the hospital to have Amy, that same nurse was there 
And she saw me afterwards and she just cried and she said, I just feel so bad that when I was looking after you before, I couldn't say anything to you because I knew your friend's baby had died and I thought your baby was going to die too. So her way of dealing it with it was to put up that wall. Wow. Wow, that's mm. so big that she even came to you. Yeah, and she, really, she was really lovely, but she she knew my history yeah. and she thought nobody had told me that my friend's baby had died because they thought mine was going to as well. Wow, that's it's such a big emotional um, backpack to carry into that, isn't it, as a, as a midwife? <laughs> yeah. Seeing you and seeing other women and, yeah. Mm. Mm. And tell me too what I'm curious about, if you can remember, uh, was it Ben, your first boy? Is that his name? Jake. Oh, Jake, sorry. Okay, so tell me what was holding Jake like for the first time after going through the experience of the convent and having your daughter taken away? What was holding Jake like? Well, now this is this is the moment where I cry. You know, mm. losing the daughter, I can deal with that, but holding Jake the first time, it was amazing. You know, I never wanted to let him go. I just couldn't believe that I actually had this beautiful little creature, and no one was going to take him away. It was it was amazing, and it's been like that with with you know all my babies. Mm. Mm. And. He, you know, when when you were connecting with him, was it was there part of you that was still not sure, or did you you know that you had this feeling that someone was just going to walk in and grab him, or you know was that coming up to the surface? Considering you know you didn't have any avenue to talk about your daughter yet at that point. No, interestingly enough, it didn't. Um, I, I think I've been pretty good at suppressing all those feelings from having my daughter. My daughter's name is Gillian, by the way, to you. Yeah. <laughs> Not what I called her, but it's what her parents. Yeah. So, um, no, I, I have, looking back on it now, the most amazing ability to pack things away in little compartments and say, right, I'm not going there again. So... No, I didn't have any negative feelings. I didn't have that sense that, you know, it didn't all come washing back to a little bit, but not to the extent that I think it affected me in any way at that time. Later on, that's a whole different story. But at that time, I thought, right, this is who I am now. I am a mother. I've got this child. I have a job to do and I'll get on with it and do it. Mm. Wow. Can you think back to the time when you found support to start unpacking your story with Gillian? That wasn't until about seven years ago. Because you've reconnected with her recently, haven't you? I reconnected with her about ten years ago. Oh, ten years ago, right. Yeah, and that was just, that was amazing and wonderful and, you know, all the, all the good things you could want to come from that. And all my life up until then, she was like the little ghost that followed me everywhere. And um, in 1984, the laws surrounding adoption were changed and records were now available to anyone who wanted them unless you sealed your records. 
and um, I wanted to be found. I wanted to find my daughter. Um, and when you agreed to have your records available, you needed to have a counselling session so that you could talk about the ramifications of what, you know, you were about to do. So I, I did that. And um, one of the things that the, the counsellor advised me, which was a really great piece of advice, was to tell my other children as soon as possible um, that prepubescent children are very accepting of any situation you place in front of them. So from a very young age, they always knew that they had a half-sister somewhere. So that was, that was a really, really good thing. So they knew um, and my records were available. I had sent a letter to the adoption agency hoping that Julian would pick it up and she never did and that sort of, that used to distress me. So I would go sort of in and out of sort of, you know, pits of despair really thinking why, why won't you connect with me? And when I did finally connect with her, I had this idea that when I connected with her and if it was all right and if I could just put my side of the story, everything would be okay, my life would be fine. Um, in fact, it wasn't. We did connect. Um, she was. She's the most wonderful person. She had the most fabulous parents. Her mother had passed away some years ago. Her father encouraged her to make contact with me. And um, so, you know, on the surface, this was terrific. And I was interviewed on um, an ABC radio program and talked about the reconnecting and the joy of finding her again. And when I listened back to it, I started to unravel. And that was when everything that had happened over all those years just came bubbling up. And um, that's when I had to seek some pro professional help. And I was diagnosed, diagnosed with delayed post-traumatic stress disorder. And how long, you know, was that process for you, considering, like you said, you compartmentalised it very well? Was that a big yeah. process to go through for you and your family to, to start um, the healing? And the look, it, it, you know, once again, I sort of kept it to myself and I go along to my sessions and um, it, it was big. But it worked, and that's the main thing. Mm. So yep. statistically, I don't know if you know, how common was this in your time when this was happening to you? Oh, enormously common. Yeah. Huge, huge. I do not know of anyone who had a baby in those in those years. We're talking, um, you know, 50s, 60s. So there were those two decades where there was an active policy to encourage women to surrender their babies for adoption. Now, prior to those years, babies um, babies were sort of absorbed into the family some way. You know, you often see those stories where I always thought that she was my sister but she was actually my mother mm -hmm. or I thought she was my auntie but she was my mother mm -hmm. or, you know, a, a, a couple who can't have children will take the illegitimate child of a of a distant relative, and these babies were always kept within the family unit. But there were those couple of decades where they weren't. They were just 
taken and, and adopted. What was the reasoning for it and sort of conjuncting with the, the um, was it Catholic system or the... Oh, no, no, it, it wasn't just, it wasn't just the Catholic system, it yeah. was a government policy. Um, and it was, you think there's this sort of idea and, you know, we can look back at it now and see how wrong it was, but there were people who genuinely believed that women would struggle um, trying to raise a child on their own. And you look at even the stolen generation policy, there were people who genuinely believed that by taking children from their families, they were giving them a better life. Well, it was wrong, and we know it was wrong. And, um, you know, in recent years it was when uh, it was Julie Gillard, there was the apology to adoptive um, mothers and babies. Do you remember that? Yes, yes. Public apology, and that was needed. And what made me really sad when I looked at all those stories around that apology um, were those women who never moved on, those women who never had children, who remained um, alone throughout their lives. They became shut down, embittered, angry, and I thought, oh, what wasted lives. And that was the one thing I do remember being so angry when I had Julian thinking, I'm not going to waste my life. Mm. Um, and that's just part of my makeup. But for some women, they couldn't, they couldn't get over it. They never did. You're listening to the Circle of Birth podcast. Circleofbirth.com Could you briefly talk about the first meeting with Gillian and just how that was for you? It was... <laughs> oh, look, there's a whole movie there, Ali. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, we are so alike, it's ridiculous. Um, so my first... My first meeting with Julian was preceded by three months of the most intense emails and exchanges of information. And um, we didn't sort of, I'm here in Canberra, she was in Melbourne, we didn't rush into it, but we knew each other inside out. And every now and then I would say, shall I ring you? And she would say, no, don't. I couldn't bear to hear your voice without being able to hold you. So it was like an intense romance. You know, we just couldn't get enough of each other. We would We would do silly things like... Take a photo of your um, bookcase with your fiction section, and I'll take a photo of mine. We'll swap them, and we're reading the same books. Oh wow! Is she into like categorizing and stuff as, as well yes. as you? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we've got the same style in, you know, furniture. We've got the same teacups. We drink the same tea. I drink. Um, yeah, spearmint and chamomile tea every morning, so does she. And I thought, she's making that up. But when I got to the house, you can see there are little packets of it everywhere. Um, so there were so many similarities. And what I would like to do, though, is just to jump back a little bit um, as to why she decided to contact me when she did. Now, when I tried to contact her, it was when her mother was dying. So she wasn't going to go. She was going. She was just sticking with the mother caring for her which, you know, is what anybody would have done. And then when day my brother died was the same day Gillian had her second baby and she said she held him and she looked down to him and she thought of me and she had a sense that her mother 
who died a number of years previously, was urging her to get in contact with me, and that's what she did. So I got home and um, there was an email from the adoption agency saying that Julian had contacted them and would like um, to make to get in touch with me. So that was that was big and amazing. And there were times in my life when I was so obsessed with Julian, every time the phone rang, I'd think, is this her? Or there was a, a letter in the mailbox, I think, is this from the adoption agency? But when I came back from Melbourne after my brother died, my head was so filled with that grief of losing my little brother that Julian had sort of slipped out of my mind for a little bit. So it was just the most amazing thing to get that email saying that she was looking for me. So that's how we connected. And um, when I got the first photo of her, um, I just looked and looked and looked, and this was, you know, on my computer, and I couldn't see me in her. I couldn't see my other children, and I couldn't see anything really familiar. And my husband was standing behind me, and I looked around, and he had a little tear running down his face, and he said, "It's she's you. She's you when I first met you. And we dragged some photos, and she is. She's like me. To, you know, it's uh, it's remarkable how much she is like me, but I couldn't see myself in her at the time. My other daughters look a little bit like me, but Julian looks completely like me. It is hard, so that, isn't it, when you look at um, yeah. your own bloodline and yeah. try and identify yourself so in a photo? <laughs> so when we first, we first met, um, we decided we'd meet in a public place and so we met at the Temple of the Winds in the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. Um, in May, it was quite cold. And I was so, so nervous, uh, incredibly nervous. I had great support from my other children. My husband flew down to Melbourne with me and um, he walked to the, to the gardens and I said, right, go away. I don't want you lurking in the bushes. And um, so... I, I had this all planned out. I knew the Temple of the Winds was up high. So when Gillian came in, I could see her coming towards me. This was this was sort of like planning a, a, a movie. I, want, I sort of had this vision in my mind about the meeting. And um, I got there early and I waited and I waited. And then I saw Gillian arrive and walk up the path towards me. And she looked up and saw me. And the next minute we just, you know, we just ran to each other. And I thought, my God, I'm having a heart attack. My heart was beating so fast. But what I could feel was hers as well. And we could both feel each other's hearts. That's how hard we were we were holding each other. And it was just just beautiful. And we both blubbed and put snot all over each other's coats and <laughs> those things. And um, then we it's it's it, I think it might have started to sort of a bit of bit of a rain. I'm not too sure, but we ended up in the um, in the little cafe thing there, and we ordered some coffee. And at the same time, we both looked at each other and said, "No, we should be having champagne." So we did. Yes, so we had a bottle of champagne at ten o'clock in the morning, and we. I had a gift for her. I knew she loved. Um, I knew she loved Jane Austen. She knew I loved Jane Austen. And I gave her the collected works of Jane Austen in a beautiful leather-bound book. And she gave me Jane Austen's letters to her sister. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and 
we just had the most wonderful day. We couldn't stop. We couldn't stop talking and laughing and crying. And um, you know, it was sort of mid-afternoon, and I, I, poor David, I, he he was just sort of lurking, around, wandering great big circles around the gardens, and um, I sort of saw him through the window, and he came in and joined us. And at one point, a, a woman walked past, and she smiled at us, and Gillian said. Um, can you guess who we are? And this woman said, you look like a mother and daughter having a wonderful day out. Wow. Yeah. And we, you know, I went back to her place and met her husband and her boys and um, David went, came back to Canberra and I stayed on in Melbourne for a few days and then, you know, she came up here and met her sisters. And the interesting thing is um, my other two daughters don't look alike but when you put Gillian with them, all three of them, you can tell they're sisters. She's like the missing link because she's got both of them. <laughs> it's very weird. I just, I, what I, like this, I've just got so many synapses throwing in my brain at the moment. <laughs> I'm just thinking <laughs> of that moment um, with your brother and the new baby for her and just the work that you're doing now with death and that real huge moment where it seems like you know, the moment she was taken from you, she energetically still was connected to you and it's like you guys lived this same parallel life. Exactly. Having yep. the same interests and the, the books and the, like it's just amazing to know that even though you're apart, you were still so close together. And That's right. Wow. Mm. <laughs> and you know, one of the beautiful things was her father knew an awful lot about me and I thought this just seems a bit weird and I then I discovered that one of the nuns at the convent had fed him all this information about me that she shouldn't have done. Wow. Yeah, and she would have been in a lot of trouble for even mentioning it. Yeah. So yeah. and I decided that we really needed to contact her and tell her that we'd been reunited. So I thought, well, this is this was a long time ago but we'll give it a shot. And I rang the convent no longer existed as a baby's home, but I rang the order that this nun belonged to and they said, look, we're really sorry, we're just not allowed to give out that sort of information, but we can tell you that she's no longer in the order. And I thought, hmm, well, there's a dead end. And um, then about a week later, I got a phone call one morning, a, a very shaky voice, elderly voice, said, uh, Vicky, it's... Kathleen. Now, this particular nun, her name was Sister Basil, and I cornered her one day and I said, what's your real name? She said, it's Kathleen. And when Julian was born, I named her Rebecca after my great-great-great-grandmother and Kathleen after Sister Basil, who took such good care of me. So when this elderly boy said, it's Kathleen, I said, is that Sister Basil? She said, yes, dear. And she left the order six months after I had Julian because she couldn't bear to see what was happening. And she was crying on the phone. She was so just. And then suddenly she said, I'm sorry, dear, I have to go now. And she hung up. So I've never had any way of contacting her again. Oh, wow. But she knew. She said, this is the most wonderful news. She said, I've never stopped thinking. She said it. she had a special connection with me. And that was, you know, that was, that's a story in itself. Yeah, it's so big, Vicky, just the, the lineage of women and the women that care. And like you said, but we are so strong as women. 
That's um, right. And even though there's this system around sometimes that's unsupportive, that there's these core people that she... It's just unbelievable that she's carried that too in yes. her life and then had that moment to heal that with you, that conversation. Mm. It's, wow. Holy moly. <laughs> it's, is um, Gillian at all found her biological father or is that even a possibility? No. We yeah. well, we had that we had that discussion. She said uh, she never asked me, and I said, "Look, I'll tell you." And she said, "We just we don't need to know him, do we?" And I said, "Well, not unless you want to." She said, "No, I don't. I don't need to." Um, and he had no part of her pregnancy, obviously the conception. But I mean, he wasn't there. What I find really profoundly interesting is in the birth work that I've done, and I've attended um, William Campbell alone well over three hundred births. First babies generally look a lot like their fathers, and there's um, you you will know the reason for that. And um, and I sort of delve further into that, and it tends to happen not so much with fathers who are disconnected. Now, the interesting thing with Julian, I was really concerned that she would look like her father, but she doesn't at all. Like her father never existed. Now, that's a weird thing to say, but when I look at her, I can see nothing of her father in her. Well, and she, I think and she has such a strong women presence in her life, so it seems, with her journey and your journey. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we just don't feel that he has a place in, in her story at all. Yeah. And, I mean, that mm. you know, you can trace that back to sort of... Um, pre-Christian times of a lot of the sort of fertility orders and um, different sort of acceptance of that, that would be normal, you know, that would be, that would be just how it's done. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So that's very interesting. Did, how, how did you find that sort of unpacking all of this story? Did you find that helped with the loss of your twins as well? And that story started to open up? It did. Um, not a, yes, it did. It did. It, because it was all this, it was a big bag of bleh. And um, you can't just take out one bit and deal with it. You've got to deal with the whole thing. So, um, yeah, yeah. And um, what you what you are unpacking, I, I believe, for me personally, was the... Um, not the individual events, the sum total. Um, so how it's affecting you physically and spiritually, that's what you're working with. And allowing that grief that has never been expressed um, and it, it doesn't sort of, it's not the same pot of grief that you just carry with you for the rest of your life, then you tip it out. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It doesn't get better with time. It gets worse until it starts to become consuming and you can see that you're reaching a point where perhaps you're not able to function as well as you should be um, so it's dealing with the grief rather than the individual events that's what I found and then I was able to look back on the individual individual events and sort of you know make some sense of them and, and get them into order does that does that yeah so this, this is where I'd love to just lead into your birth work and serving in birth and death um, in, in your story and intertwine that. Your first birth that you served was in the birth centre in Canberra. Do you want to just sort of 
start beginners into your doula life? Okay, so I'd been I'd moved to UK for a couple of years and I was working there with my husband and um, came home when my when Amy was having her first baby. Now, in between me having my last baby and Amy having her first baby, I'd attended quite a few births just as, you know, a helper, a true doula but without a label. So when I came back to Canberra and attended the birth of my first grandchild, one of the midwives there said, look, you would be a fabulous doula. And I said, well, if I ever want to think about giving up the day job, I will consider that. And as it turned out, I was starting to think I wanted to give up the day job. Um, I had reached a point in my career where I I could, I heard a wonderful expression once, when you, you get to the top of the ladder, you just need to make sure that the ladder's against the right wall. And I had a sense that my ladder wasn't against the right wall. I, I wasn't loving my work anymore. I had previously, but I just wasn't anymore. And it just happened that the birth of my granddaughter sort of coincided with me reaching an age where I could draw on my superannuation. And the payment of my last mortgage <laughs> instalment. So these things sort of fell in together and I thought, you know what, I could give up the day job. So I did. I retrained. I trained as a doula and um, set up Confident Birth. And it was my daughter who came up with that name. I said, look, I'm just mm, sort of thinking about names. And she said, well, Mum, what you did is you just you just gave me confidence. You gave me a confident birth. And she said, I think that's a good name. So that was the name we, we, we stuck with. So that was my first birth, um, and that was 16 years ago at the birth centre in Canberra. And my last birth as a doula was one year ago in the birth centre in Canberra, and that was my sixth grandchild. So they are two absolutely divine bookends to my career as a doula and I think that's a, a really lovely chapter in my in my life as I move on to the next one. I just love that. I just what a what a beautiful circle and what a beautiful way to to sort of bow yourself, not out, but you know, just to step back into that. Yeah. 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 Had the birth yeah. centre changed a lot since birth oh, that, that year? It had. Um um you know, 16 years ago, it was it was much more relaxed. It was sort of separate from the hospital, and it was just it, it was lovely. I really, really loved it. Um, the new birth centre is sort of very much it's it's more hospitally. Um, it's still terrific, and the midwives are still fantastic. But um, I shouldn't say, but it's different. It's different. Yeah. So my this podcast really stretches out to a community of birth workers so I'd love mm -hmm. to sort of get a bit of your experiential wisdom as a doula and just focusing on the the birth work what what was your journey like so that 16 years ago um growing into the work and obviously like you said you're coming from a different career and you've just stepped into yeah. this aligning your ladder putting it against the wall um what's some sort of wisdom that you can unpack for for the listeners there in birth work terms? Um, I think the main thing is is that acceptance and understanding of the, of the uniqueness of each birth and each woman 
there's no cookie cutter approach to being a doula. You have to understand that holy trinity of support, which is you know physical support, emotional support, and information. And it takes it takes a long time to um, discover in each individual woman that you work with how that balance will fall. You know, some women will want lots and lots of information. They don't need so much emotional support. They may have all already have good support. Um, others may have all the information but just need masses of physical support or it can be the other way around. Some may not have anyone with them and they just need all the emotional support. So being able to differentiate between women's needs I think is a really important aspect of doula work and that comes with experience mainly. Um, fortunately, my, my background um, was in academic research I was a library manager so I'm part of part of what I've always done is teased out what people actually need they may say they want one thing but they may need another and a perfect example of this was many years ago when my Amy was about eight and um, we were we just got home from shopping and we were putting stuff away and she turned to David who is her stepfather and said what's a virgin and he said, oh, you, you better ask mummy. And I gave him that look which said, no, you answer this. And so he said, um, it's a, a lady who hasn't had a baby. And I just rolled my eyes and I said, mm, try again. And he said, it's someone who hasn't had sexual intercourse. And Amy looked at him and she was holding a bottle and she said, well, what's that got to do with olive oil? So there was a perfect example of somebody who didn't understand the question, and I think this happens a lot in birth work. You really have to listen very, very carefully, and I think there's a lot more listening than talking needs to happen because people might say one thing, but they really mean another. And the difficulty, too, is you're working with two people, and I am I just love being with with people who are just so in tune with each other. They almost know what the other person's thinking and that's just fabulous. But also there'll be those times when you think, do these people even know each other because they're, such, they're on such different wavelengths and they're the ones that can be really hard work. And you almost have to be a little bit sort of, you have to be a chameleon because you have to deal with, you know, maybe the mother in one way and the father with another. And sometimes even reaching a point where you might have to, sort of act almost as an umpire and say, do you do you guys really want to be in the room together? And sometimes men will be better men by not being at a birth and it takes a tough man to stand up and say, look, I don't think I've got anything to bring to this event. And for a woman to say, you know, I understand that and I would feel more comfortable if I didn't have to worry about you. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I talk about that a lot with a few guests because um, men are just so new into this birth space. No, I think a lot of them are guilted into being there and then they don't know what to do and women worry about the men. And so it's just, it's just, it just takes too much. It's too much energy being removed um, because a man really doesn't want to be there. But this doesn't happen all the time. It, yeah, but it happens occasionally. And I'm, we're talking about, you know, wisdom and experience. And I think having the wisdom to see that is important. Um, having the wisdom to really understand what a woman wants, um, 
having the wisdom to leave behind your own baggage it's not your birth if it goes badly it goes badly it's got nothing to do with you you are supporting people it is their birth um over the years obviously i've become pretty well known and um you know i've had doctors and midwives talk to me and the doulas they have issues with are those who um uh, try and speak on behalf of the woman who try to take control um or promise more than they can give and I, those are the those are the three areas that um people can find complaint with mm. yeah and i guess i don't know if you could sort of reflect on the beginning of your dualing journey it might How be tricky for I, I like i know in my own journey that i've had stuff come back and go no this is about you you need to let that go or you know yeah, the start, well, you know, at the start when you're still get, getting a handle of like meeting families and doing this work, it always, yeah. you know, you, your stuff just seems to come into it and you've got to just drop it. Um, and it's actually a really hard process. Uh, I imagine it really is. And I feel for younger doulas, and I'm in a different category because my children are already adults. My births were a long time ago and they were very different. With younger doulas, I can see how, you know, it's all fresh and new. But for me, um, it's very different. Like even the process of birthing now is different. There are all these darn checks and things and scans and oh, I just can't get my head around all the stuff you women have to go through before you even have your baby. It's almost like the your confidence is being ripped out of you before you even going to labour, you know, is your body capable of producing a baby? You know, we need to make sure you're not doing this, that you're not too fat, that you're not too thin, that you're not too whatever, that your baby's growing at the right stage. And I feel really, really bad for women who just want to enjoy their pregnancy um, because I never had all that. And that distances me from the births that, that I'm working with because I never had all that and my births were a long time ago. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that's yeah. a good point too. Is I'm not carrying it anymore. Carrying it, I'm, yeah. yeah. I'm not, those memories aren't sort of fresh and new to me. They're, they're old memories and it was all, it was, a, it was another century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even in a sense too that you, your imprint of, you know, your journeys wasn't what it is now and so no. you're coming from that space but gently guiding and helping people have that confident pregnancy um, yeah. not a caged pregnancy or a fearful pregnancy which is true you know you kind of start the it's like the the layers start to get stripped from the moment you do a pregnancy test i mean even a pregnancy test is another intervention that's, that's the, right. the beginning of it and then so the next thing is the doctor and the blood test and then it's just slowly stripped away from you or stripped mm. off you um all these layers of you know, connecting within and that in intuitive, <coughs> intuitive pregnancy and intuitive birthing. So, yeah, it's a it's a big job these days for women to like be, become pregnant. It is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember with my first, I just remember that 
thing. Like I was really unaware of the system and I thought I was such an aware person. I thought, yeah, I've got be fine. Like no one tells me what to do or da 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 And like, yeah, I was very wrong. And I just remember that feeling of going, wow, that moment I found out I was pregnant, I just remember the cascade of everything happening. And um, yeah. And I can see the difference even in the 16 years of my doula work, how that's just become more intense. Mm. So, there, yeah, reflecting on the younger doulas um, coming into that and then myself being one of them, like, you know, I'm a fairly new mother with young children mm. and just knowing that that's what it is and working <coughs> with that for now and then what it's going to be in the future, we don't know, but that's what it is for now and I don't know before that. So, I've no. been, yeah, if that makes sense. So... There's that element to work with it too because there's a bit of fear for the doulas and what they can say, can't say, who they've got to work with and how they communicate with the family to communicate with the care providers. And <laughs> And uh, if I think back to 16 years ago, we were, we were considered a bit sort of bonkers because we were asking for, not even demanding, asking for delayed cord clamping. Now yeah. it's routine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what is it, what is even, like this is where I go back to that thing, I'm really deepening the questioning, what is delayed cord clamping? Because what is it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what was it before that? It wasn't even a thing, but now it's a thing that you have to okay. ask for. <laughs> That's right. So in, in the past, as soon as the baby was born, the cord was clamped. Mm. As soon as the baby was born. Mm. I mean, you don't wait for the centres or anything. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting because now delayed cord clamping can be, you know, anything. And um, it can be, you know, in the obstetric model of care is, oh, we'll give it a minute. In the midwifery model of care, we can wait until the cord's quite white. Yeah, yeah. And that's a big time. Yeah. A big time, yeah. And then I just often wonder, what about the mother model of just saying when I'm ready? <laughs> Exactly. When I say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I also think we live in, in such a litigious society now that um, any medical facilities are bum covering the whole time. And, you know, they have to do that. And it's just, it's just sort of, I think it's a tragic sort of light on our world in general that if something goes wrong, a finger has to be pointed and somebody has to be held accountable. And... Um, so I think, you know, as time moves on and this becomes um, um, more a thing, um, then these, um, what am I looking at, these policies are put in place and they become more and more restrictive and I think that's a real shame. Stepping down from your doula work, what are you filled with, possibility and hope or a bit of despair? What's your emotional... Oh, I'm always filled with possibilities and hope. Cool. Always, Good. <laughs> always, in every aspect. And I think, I think life is, um, life and times are like pendulums; they swing backwards and forwards. And um, I think the pendulum is going to start swinging back. I'm starting to feel that already. That's good. To, to a more gentle, yeah. um, you know, woman-centered approach. I hope we haven't gone too far. Um, 
sometimes I think we have when I'm working with um, so I'm working with women whose mothers are younger than me um, they'll often say look as soon as you as soon as you go into labor um, you know get as many drugs as you can possibly have and you're an idiot if you don't have an epidural because it's just so painful it's so horrible and it's so blah 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 and they were the women that were forced to give birth lying on their back and of course it was hideous and they don't know any other way and they're telling their daughters that I want to I just want to put my hand over their mouths and drag them out of the room but <laughs> yeah. that's one of the things that we're dealing with um, uh, not just um, you know how the media views birth there's a wonderful um, movie called laboring under an illusion i don't know if you've ever seen that if you haven't please find it it's terrific and it looks at how the media presents birth and it's always either a tragedy or a comedy but there's got to be masses of drama so women are viewing birth through the veils of their own experience and what the media throws to them now if their own experience is their mother's experience that can be pretty grim so sometimes you've got to deal with a the, the mother of the mother as well as the woman herself when it comes to medication because they see the epidural as the sort of the holy grail of birth. Yeah, I can definitely see that. It's even, even like um, when I rang my mother and got my birth story, what it opened up for me and the healing for her as well, mm. just having that discussion um, in that safe created space. Um, was really quite interesting to see um, that sort of sense of repression or suppression back then. And then, yeah, you're exactly right, it carries over into the, and it, into the line. And, and at the same time, I've worked with a number of women here in Canberra whose mothers had home births. And Canberra had a really big home birth culture um, in the past. So their views of birth were just fabulous and they were just beautiful to work with because, you know, the only sad thing was that they had to have their baby in a hospital. Mm. They had no negative views of birth. They were excited and mm. they had great births. So that, you know, how, how your mother birthed is really, I think, important to... Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good starting point. So when I'm working with women, I always ask them what their birth was like because that gives me heaps and heaps of information good advice do you know your birth what your birth was like um my mother had very quick births um she had no pain relief and she had very quick births so in our family birth was yeah we just you just did it you just got on with oh, it it's a bit tough but you get on you do with it so um that was my view i i think i had a fairly you know robust healthy view of birth um and that's, certainly, that sounds like that's carried over into you, hasn't it? That just to, yeah. that, you know, just not easy, yeah. but like, yep, get it done, and that's it, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, all all the hard, all the good things are hard work. Yep, mm. and, and you know, the planet still exists. There are an awful lot of people on the planet, and if birth was really that difficult, <laughs> we would have stopped doing it. Yeah, that's right. It seems like birth is just like nature's most easiest part of, of the natural <laughs> system is birth. It is. Of course it is. Yeah. And I often say, have you ever, have you ever seen a, um, a, 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 moth, a butterfly emerge from a cocoon? No, I haven't physically, but yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I always 
you know, if, if women are sort of a little bit sort of edgy or doubtful, I say you just have a look at a butterfly. You can find, you know, clips on YouTube. It, it breaks out because it can no longer fit in the space and it's terribly, terribly vulnerable. It's a painful-looking process. Um, and as it does emerge, its wings are wet, it can't fly, it's, it, it could fall, it could be prey to, you know, a bird or you could, you know, it, it's, it's dangerous. It has to spread its wings out and they dry in the sun then it flies off and it's magnificent. Now, you wouldn't deny the butterfly that experience. You wouldn't say, no, just stay in the cocoon because it's a bit scary out here. But, you know, you'd say, look, it's hard work. You're going to be okay. I'll protect you. Make sure a bird doesn't eat you. The sun will come out, warm your wings, and you'll be a beautiful butterfly. Births like that, it's hard work, but you can do it. And you've got, if, if you've got the protection, the right people around you, it's um, it's a, a joyous event. It's fantastic. So that's one of the stories I often tell. One of the other stories I often tell, too, is... Um, um, I used to run. I used to run the city to surf, and it's a really, really hard run. It's 14 k's and up a couple of killer hills, and you, you know you, you're running up one of those hills, and you think, "Oh, good God, why am I doing this? I could get a cab to Bondi. I don't need to be doing this." But people along the way will be cheering and saying, "You know, go, Granny, go," and that boosts you up, and you keep going. When you get to the end, you think, "Oh, I wouldn't have missed that for creeds." And I think birth is like that too. It's hard work, but gee, you wouldn't want to miss it. Wow, I love those stories. I, I I used to be a runner myself and I know that exact running feeling. And then I feel too like looking at the animalistic nature of birth and looking at creatures and mammals and yeah. something that's aligned to us in nature. And mm. I just love that, like the closeness that that butterfly would have had to death. Yep. But knowing it had to break out and take a chance at life. Because that's what, I mean, that's what the system's designed to do. That there's not that, I suppose, innate fear of death there because life is just so, you know, you need to break out. I can't be in here any longer. I've got to come out and try and live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, speaking of death, just can we talk for a few minutes about, before we wrap up the podcast, about when you got into death work? Okay, um, it was something that had always, always been at the back of my mind for many, many, many years. Um, I've been with, I'm not going to go into individual details, they're a bit personal and they're family members, but I've been with people when they've died and I felt that this was an experience that is being um, misunderstood Um People are being denied, um, what's the word, they're being denied actively being involved in that experience and I see that birth and death are just, it's the same door, you're just going another way. And I had that sense, particularly through my Buddhist um, understandings, that, um, you know, birth is the process, death is a process. Death doesn't come suddenly like a thief in the knife in the night sorry it it's slowly it, it builds up and I think people who are dying and people who are who are with people who are dying need those three things that women who are birthing need they need information they need to know what's going to happen next 
what the body is actually doing, what to expect. They need perhaps some physical support. They need somebody to bring them a cup of tea, to rub their back even. It's a it's a painful process watching somebody die. You get stiff and tense and you need somebody to fetch and carry for you just to make sure everything's in place, somebody to light a candle, somebody to put some peaceful music on. And you need that emotional support as well. You need somebody that you can just open your mouth and wail at without them wanting to fix you. So it's creating a space for this event to occur where people can feel free to express any emotions they need to feel. And it's um, opening a dialogue, which I don't think we, we do around death. We're getting much, much better at it. Um, but it's an area that I felt was was um, lacking and um, something that I, I really was interested in doing. So, um, yeah, so that's sort of moved me into that area. And I'd been with a number of, of families who'd lost their babies and um, it was a, a privileged place to be. And looking back now, I've, I get I get messages from women who say, "Look, that was a terrible time, but I couldn't have got through it without you." And I think, "What did I do?" And I, the fact is, I did nothing. I was just there. And I think being there, not trying to do something, but just being there, is something that's really important. And um, in that the culture around death, it's difficult to find that one person. You might have medical staff, you'll have hospice staff, you'll have, you know, undertakers, you might have um, people from spiritual backgrounds who will come and go. But I think an end-of-life doula is like a birth doula, that one familiar face that will go through all of those events and always be there, um, maybe not physically, but at the end of the phone line. Mm. It's that constant, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah, just like birth and death, it's so similar in that circle. And just having someone there that you know their face, that you recognise and you might not want to contact them, you might want to, it doesn't matter, just knowing that someone's there. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's huge and you don't yeah, like we I mean I did some death doula training uh this year and just really realising that you don't need all these Again, like birth door, you don't need all these medical skills or um, this huge knowledge. You just need that scope to understand the process and what happens and how you can best support the family. And I just think Amy and I were talking about this um, when I did the recording with her that it really should be brought into universities. Um, you know, myself as a student midwife, I would love to see a whole unit on death and how to support that. Absolutely. To being a midwife and for doulas too, to see that as part of your training um, is, you know, a real focus on being a death doula as well as a birth doula. Because now, now that I, I just can't see one without the other now. I just couldn't see myself as just birth, birth because I have to look at death too. So, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so just you're speaking on the, is it the ninth or the fourth? Fourth. Fourth. The fourth. Yeah. Yes. Now it's going to be such an amazing event that Amy has organised um, from Little Silk Wings, whose podcast everyone would have heard because I would have 
released it before talking to you. And yeah, so it's in Canberra and tickets are through her website too. Yeah. Uh, Vicky, I'm just so, so, so honoured. We've spent such a good time. I just loved your story and I had so many millions of other questions to ask, <laughs> which I had to contain that myself. Might be, might be for another time. Yeah. I don't know how I, I would ever get to work at like the ABC or become a professional journalist because I just don't think I could condense such stories. I don't know how they do it. Oh, <laughs> hard it's really yeah, hard. yeah my curiosity and imagination and everything just explodes and like my brain you could almost if you could just unpack it and see it, it'd be like this all these cogs going off and <laughs> the hive of activity going on in there but yes thank you so much for sharing your journey it's been an absolute pleasure thanks Andy. um just to you're still doing placenta encapsulation which we didn't get to talk about much but that's okay and that's canberra placenta services that's right. Yes, yeah. and uh, I first I first got into that in um, England in in two thousand. So that's that's oh, a long yeah. story there too. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, you would have seen the rise of that too, I suppose. From I have. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, yep. Vicky. <laughs> okay, thank. Did this episode tickle your heart? move and rattle you in its wisdom? I hope you resonated with the show. Please head over to the website, circleofbirth.com, for show notes, including my personalised take on the episode, pictures, resources, and how you can connect with a storyteller. Sign up to the newsletter, and most importantly, please help this show grow to its full potential of serving you in its ancient wisdom. Donations made easy via PayPal. All donations will be received with love. Head to circleofbirth.com slash donate. And yes, I'd love an iTunes rating. This has been another episode of the Birth Share Project. We breathe, we birth, we become. We honour you and empower you.